be as reckless as you can be with love. Give it away. Just give it away. Love everyone. And don't think that maybe they don't deserve it, maybe they won't appreciate it, maybe this, maybe that. No. Just give it away. Recklessly. Without thought. Share it. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week on In Good Faith, we are talking about love. Imagine that, love and religion. <laughs> and we're mixing in some community because you've got to have somebody to love. And then, of course, there's... Okay, you get where we're going on this. I'm in studio with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And student producer Emma Ingebretson. Hi. I love these two guests that we have. Thank you. And the very first one is going to be talking about love and grief. You know, we've done a couple of episodes about grief or with people experiencing grief. And I have to say, every single time I walk away with a new tool in my tool bag. And in mm. fact, that's what Colin Campbell, our guest, is trying to accomplish. Uh, he's actually written a book called... Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. Yeah, and it's actually set up as kind of a guidebook, right? Do these things at this time. Take these actions. Uh, you're going to feel this way, but don't be afraid of that. Um, and I've never suffered profound traumatic loss, but I have known people who have, and I just feel like I want to redo, you know? I want to be able to go back in time and do better at comforting them after this interview. Yes, I have suffered a, a bigger loss. And the thing is, even though I've suffered, I still sometimes don't know how to handle it with other people. Mm. So that's why I really like what Colin is doing here, because we're all still learning how to navigate different things. And grief isn't something that people always face um, maybe when they're younger, but that doesn't mean that we can't still learn how to handle it with kind of more love and, and more grace. What Colin does is talk about his what worked and what didn't in a way that is a gift to whether you are the grieving person or the person supporting and grieving with someone else. Here's an interesting twist. He's an atheist. Oh, yeah. And he has some of the best advice I've heard for believing people on this topic. And I do need to warn you. The cause for Colin Campbell's and his wife's grief is about the worst thing a parent can imagine. Their two teenage children were killed by a drunk driver. And that's where he begins. They were, they were fantastic. I know I'm biased, but um, they were really extraordinary children. And Ruby was 17 when she was killed, and Hart was 14. So they were teens, they were teenagers, and brimming with life. So Ruby had gone on, and actually a very challenging journey. She struggled with OCD and depression and suicidality in her early teens. But a really remarkable thing happened right towards the end of her life, which is that she found the right therapist, the right medication and really transformed in a very beautiful way. And so she became an extraordinary artist and a voracious one at that, a self-taught one. And she really discovered her own sexuality in a really powerful way. She came out as a lesbian. We were very loving and supportive right from the start. But by the end, she was really proud of who she was. And that was a beautiful thing to see. And Hart, he was an amazing young man. So funny, so hilarious, a nonstop fount of ridiculous characters often inappropriate. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he was so kind. They're both so kind. That's really the most salient feature of both of them. I loved getting to know them through the book and how you and your wife have really kept them in your life rather mm -hmm. than try and, and say, that's a painful part I need to shut off. Yeah. The whole title of the book, Finding the Words, you refer to a phenomenon where I think people mean to be helpful and they use that this phrase you bring up, there are no words. Can you talk to me about why those aren't great words to share with people who've suffered a catastrophic loss? All these people who said this phrase to me, there are no words, they were all incredibly loving, right? And they were all trying to be helpful in the face of this sort of unfathomable loss. And, and what do you say to somebody? But what struck me on the receiving end was 
it was bizarre how often that phrase was used. That was like the go-to phrase for literally hundreds of people. And so for me on the receiving end, at first I was like, oh yes, there are no words. You're absolutely right. But then after say the 50th or the 80th or the 100th time I heard that phrase, I started to wonder, well, wait a minute, are there words? Because saying there are no words, it often acted as a conversation stopper. That was sort of it. That was the end. That was their one catchphrase they could use. And then the conversation was over. And I had discovered that I really needed to talk about my grief, my loss, and about Ruby and Hart. I wanted to talk about them. I needed to because it was so difficult to literally understand what was happening to me. I needed to talk about it just to process it. Can you talk to me about what you called the grief spiel, which you adapted for different situations, but I think can be so instructive to any of us? I, mean, I think the reality is that nobody really knows what to say, right, in these situations. And it's so easy to think the best thing to do is to back away and assume that the person who's grieving wants to be left alone. And the reality is that grievers spend a lot of time alone. <laughs> And what we really need is community because we get plenty of alone time. I've never heard anybody in any of the grief circles I've ever been in telling me that they've got too much community. <laughs> they've had too many people reach out to them. I've never heard that. But I have heard the inverse over and over again. That people don't get it. They don't reach out. They feel abandoned by their friends and family. And I think maybe because I have a background in theater, my wife and I are both theater kids at heart, that maybe there was a facility with reaching out to people, or also maybe it was just desperation. It was a level of desperation. It was like, it's very socially awkward to tell somebody what your emotional need is. In the society, we're taught not to do that. Don't ask for help. But we were both so desperate. We felt like we were literally losing our minds if we couldn't talk about Ruby and Hart. And so it seemed like the right thing to do to tell people that. They came in through our front door and they were terrified of saying the wrong thing. Even just saying, hi, how are you? They were scared to say that because what if I said, how am I? How do you think I am? How dare you ask me how I am? My children were murdered. And so that I think was a fear in some people's minds. And so my wife and I discovered that if we told people one at a time, that was our grief spiel. It was like, listen, we actually need to talk about Ruby and Hart. We need to talk about our grief and our loss. That, that put them at ease. They're like, oh, thank you. Thank you for this guidance. Thank you for giving us the ground rules for how to interact with you because we have no yeah. idea. Not only was it okay to mention your children's names, but you wanted to know people's stories and interactions. Right. That was the sort of beautiful side effect, which was that we could ask people, tell us a Ruby and Hart story. And oftentimes people would tell us things that we didn't know. We never heard mm. these stories. We didn't know that you had this interaction with our kids. You know what I mean? Because who knows? In the flow of life, you don't know everything that happens with your children. And so we got these amazing gifts from people, new memories of people who are gone forever. So they were invaluable. So to use the phrase you have used throughout the book, you have leaned into this experience mm. to understand it. And so you have this book, Finding the Words. I think it's very hard. It's very hard to process, you know, what on some level is unfathomable, losing your children, or really any catastrophic, profound loss. And I discovered that it really helped to talk about it. And by thinking about it, by articulating it, it really helped me get a handle on it. So it didn't feel like I was just a victim of grief, but I was actually traveling through it on some level. You write very movingly of support received from members of your community in the synagogue that you attend, ECAR. Will you tell me about the whole idea that you end up where you're actually inviting people into your home at the time you most might want to say, I need some time? So my wife is Jewish. I'm not. I was raised by WASP atheists. So I grew up as an atheist and I love being an atheist, but I had no cultural traditions around grieving really none at all. I was at a total loss. And uh, we raised our kids as Jews, so Hart and Ruby were both bar and bat mitzvahed. And we're, we were active members of our temple. And I really leaned into these Jewish traditions because I was like, I've got nothing. <laughs> so I was like, I figured the Jews have been doing this for thousands of years. I'm going to listen to them. <laughs> Whatever my rabbi says, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but what I learned from practicing the Jewish traditions of grieving was about practicality. What are these things doing? And so one of the first lessons I learned is Shiva. So Shiva is the period of mourning that lasts for a week after the funeral. And every night your community comes to your house and sits with you, literally sits with you since sitting Shiva. And at first I was like, what? People are coming to my house? Just like you pointed out, I don't want that. I'm in intense grief. I want to be left alone, I think. 
But then when they actually arrive, I suddenly found, wow, I really needed this community to be here because I wanted to talk about Ruby and Heart to a room full of people. I wanted to have them talk about Ruby and Heart. I want to share, I want us all to grieve together, to grieve in community. And it felt so helpful. And so night after night, people would come to our house and I'd be like, oh no, not again. And then by the end of the evening, I was like, oh, I'm so grateful that they're here. I'm so grateful that we're telling stories. I have so much to say that I need to say. And then I want to also mention the Mourner's Kaddish. And it's in Hebrew, and I don't speak Hebrew, but it's a very interesting prayer. It's known as the Mourner's Prayer, but it doesn't mention grief at all. It references God like 13 times, and it talks just positively about God's beauty and bountiness and, and wishing for a good life. And that was interesting to me. But what's most interesting is you have to say the Mourner's Prayer every day for the whole year, and then on every holiday, but you can't say it alone. You have to say it with at least nine other people present. And that was an extraordinary thing because here I was grieving. I would start to weep naturally. And I'm in community. I'm weeping publicly day after day. These people who have offered to stand with me in my grief and then amen me. So what happens during the prayer is several points, the people that are listening, they're with you, they say amen. And for me, it was like, oh, they are validating my grief in a way. They are bearing witness and saying, what you're doing is good. Amen to that. Amen to you expressing your pain publicly. And that was a very powerful lesson as well. So this is quite a moving section where you talk about the idea of God is love, how even as an atheist, you have found an angle that worked for you. In the Mourner's Kaddish alone, God is referenced 13 times. It's hard when you just don't believe in an all-powerful deity, but I discovered a helpful trick. I replaced every reference to God and He and Holy One with the word love. It works incredibly well. Even some of the stranger references to God in the Bible or Torah turn out to have new, beautiful meanings. Phrases such as, may He smite our enemies, translate into the charming idea, may love smite our enemies. It's a nice visual. The most irritating people in my life suddenly becoming love-struck. Sometimes, when I think of the word love, I imagine it as a positive, life-affirming force that courses through all beings. And sometimes, I specifically imagine the love I shared with Ruby and Heart. Exalted and hallowed be Ruby and Heart's love. May Ruby and Heart's love be blessed forever and for all eternity. Blessed and praised, glorified, exalted, and extolled, honored, adored, and lauded be the name of Ruby and Heart's love. Amen. Turning that around seemed to give you a way to share in that community experience, even with believers and non-believers. Yes. The idea of community seems so important to everyday life, let alone grief, that I really loved being, I love, continue to love being a part of our synagogue, even though I, I said I don't really believe in an all-powerful deity, but I do believe in love. I do believe that in the power of love, and I believe that it does transcend the mortal realm. I, I feel Ruby and Hart's love. Certainly on good days, I do. <laughs> and it's changed me and shaped me. You talk about the idea that morning rituals don't actually make us more sad, which is great to hear in words. People are yeah. often thinking, well, if I bring up their names, that might cause sadness. But you point out, we are already as sad <laughs> as we can get. Yeah. Can you talk to me about this? So part of the grief spiel was, I would say, you can't trigger me because I'm already triggered. I'm triggered all the yeah. way. It doesn't get more triggered than this. And that idea, I think, helped people because, as you say, they're scared. What if I make them sad? I'm already mm. sad. I haven't forgotten my kids were killed. I never forget my kids are killed. In my dreams, I remember that my kids are killed. So it's always with me. And I might cry. It's true. If you start talking about Ruben Hart to me, I might tear up. But that's not bad. <laughs> that's part of love. That's the beautiful, painful flip side of love. And so... I have a new relationship to tears and pain, and so all these moments are tough but good in the end. You said you also created personal morning rituals mm. for Ruby and Hart. Yeah. Do you mind talking about that? We first were inspired to do these more public rituals, inviting people in and, and holding these ceremonies, and was very helpful. But I found I really wanted almost on a daily basis to be encountering Ruby and Hart, their spirit, in one way or another. And I just discovered a number of different things we kept doing, my wife and I, wear some clothes that belonged to Ruby and Hart. They gave me a baseball cap. Well, they were going to give it to me for Father's Day, but they were killed just a few days before Father's Day. So they never actually got to give me this gift, but I got it and I got to wear it now. 
and think about them. We have pictures of them up, and my wife and I toast them every time we have a drink or cocktail. You mentioned Father's Day, which brings me to the talk about different holidays, some that you enhanced, others that you thought were skipping that this year, <laughs> from Thanksgiving to a Seder to Dia de los Muertos. So talk to me about maybe that Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was going to be so hard. So they were killed in June, and so this was November. So five months later, we were not in a thankful mood to say the least. And the thought of gathering and having these empty plates was just so scary. But I had learned that rituals are a way of processing grief with community. And so here is a gathering, a Thanksgiving gathering with our families, is another opportunity for us to share our grief with our families. And Gail's sister-in-law offered to host both families. So my family and Gail's family were gonna gather and celebrate Thanksgiving in honor of Ruby and Hart. And we realized we had a couple of needs. One is that is this a sort of a maybe it's specific to our family, or maybe it's all families, but gathering for Thanksgiving, someone's going to get on somebody's nerve, right? I think that's maybe universal. <laughs> Something's going to go wrong, and someone's going to snipe at each other. And Gail and I, we couldn't take it. Just the thought of anybody being like rude to somebody else or just aggravated. We're like, we can't be in that space. We have to be in a space just of love and grief. And so we just sent an email out to our family, said, just please, everybody be on your best behavior, basically. No arguments, because nothing else really matters right now. And I don't even know if we needed to send that. I'm, I'm sure they would have behaved perfectly anyway, but it did help Gail and I to do that, to reach out and say that. Please help us. And then we also wanted to structure it so that there would definitely be a moment where we would sit around the table and talk about Ruby and Hart. We said, let's go around the circle. Instead of saying, giving our thanks like we normally would do, let's give our thanks for being part of Ruby and Hart's lives and share a story about them. And that was really nice to do. You end with finding meaning and purpose. And the whole idea of a life that goes on, and you talk about the first time you and your wife, Gail, doing something new, for instance, learning Spanish, was suddenly you're doing something as two and not as four. It's so interesting Everything changes when you lose somebody who's so close to you because it's all seen through this new light. And now suddenly, like you said, we started learning Spanish, taking Spanish lessons. And it was the first thing that Gail and I had done that we couldn't tell Ruby and Hart about. And it was painful. On some level, it felt like a betrayal. We're living without you. But that's the reality. That's the reality of people who go on living. We have to live without the people we lost. And taking those sort of baby steps and grieving it, but then also doing it, stepping out into life, choosing to continue to live and have new experiences, as painful as that is, is really, I think, part of the process of moving forward in grief. I say I have two holes in my heart. And they're never going to heal. They're never going to close up. Uh, I'm never going to not ache for Ruby and Hart. I, don't, I wouldn't want that. Yeah. Why would I want to not ache for my children? I, I love them. There's nothing wrong with aching. <laughs> it just hurts. But I feel my heart growing, absolutely. And as I move forward in life, I'm having new experiences and new compassions for other people and, and new loves for other people. I feel that the heart is expanding. I'm wondering if the fact that you haven't tried to bury their memory or say, I just, that's too painful, I can't think about it, that you've leaned into that, has that after time created a way for you to have joy in the knowledge that you were their father and what a great relationship you had? I really think that in order to feel that joy, I have to lean into the pain. Because if I'm not allowing myself to feel the pain of their loss, then I'm also not allowing myself to feel the joys that we shared. Because if it's too scary to think about them, because I'm scared of the pain, then I'm not going to think about them. And I'm going to miss out on all the joy that we had. That was a realization that came to me very early on. I talk about it in the book. There's this moment where I, I had these giant blow-up pictures of Ruby and Hart. They were all along the living room walls, big, larger-than-life photos of them. And it was helpful to me to see their smiling faces in the living room. And then one morning it wasn't. It was scary. It was just too, it hurt too much. I thought, no, this is too much, I can't. And I looked away. And in that moment, I thought, what am I doing? I'm allowing my fear of pain to block access to my children. I'm literally looking away from my children's faces because I'm too scared of the pain. And I, I can't do that. I cannot take that path. I won't look away from my children or our memories out of fear of pain. 
And that was really helpful to me. It continues to be helpful to me because the pain comes up all the time and it's always scary and you always want to avoid it. <laughs> I think people are so scared of grief and the pain of grief. And it can feel like if I start to cry, I'll never stop. I'll literally lose my mind. That's how it feels. That's what it felt like to me. But then gradually, as you start to let yourself cry and let yourself feel the fullness of your despair, I discovered that it comes in waves and it's ultimately bearable. And so I would wish for people to not be so scared of grief because in the end, it's a beautiful thing because it comes from love. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. At first, I wanted to say no to everything. I really just, I wanted to be alone. Same thing as Shiva. Don't come to my house right now. (laughs) Leave me alone. But then I discovered, no, actually being out in the world, in life, it's helpful. And so the other challenging thing was if somebody said, hey, do you want to take a walk tomorrow? I would think to myself, tomorrow? I have no idea. I'm in fresh, acute grief. I don't know how I'll feel 10 minutes from now. I cannot commit to something a day from now. Who knows how I'll feel? So no, to protect myself, no. But then I thought, I need community and I want to engage with life even though I don't want to engage with life. You know what I mean? Like I know it's the right thing to do even if I don't want to do it. And also it's hard to make decisions in early grief. You just feel so lost. You have no idea. Do you want a ham sandwich? I don't know. I don't know what I want. So it helped me just to say, you know what? I'm going to say yes to everything, literally everything. And if somebody makes a suggestion, I'm just going to say yes to it, not even think about it. And that's a little extreme. It's not right for everybody, but it helped me. And I could always say no at the last minute, by the way. I didn't know. I wasn't committing to anything, but I ended up saying yes to everything, yeah. It sounded like that process helped you discover a few things that weren't helpful, mm-hmm. but some that really were, like the a grief group. I went to multiple grief groups in the end. I went to multiple compassionate friends grief groups. I went to MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving grief groups. I went to Our House grief groups, which is an organization in Los Angeles that's amazing. And they were all helpful to be in community as I grieved. Surprisingly, because death is a part of each of our lives eventually mm-hmm. at some point, we somehow are not taught at least in our contemporary culture, how to grieve, which is one of the things I think is so valuable about what you've collected here, Colin, is ways to grieve. Almost like you don't even know where to begin, but here are some options. I think it helps that I'm not Jewish. So it's like I'm taking these Jewish ideas, but anybody can take them. You don't have to be Jewish to grieve in community. I think, of course, other cultural traditions have wonderful grieving rituals as well. And I suggest that in the book, if you have a culture, lean into that culture, lean into that culture's practices as much as you can. And any grieving practice you can lay your hand on, go for it. That was Colin Campbell talking about his book, Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. I don't know where to start. I wrote down so many (laughs) things. I loved when he talked about grieving in community and how, at least for me, I've just heard a quote and it said something along the lines of grief oftentimes needs to be seen. And I feel like Colin really articulated that, that you need a community to kind of help you process and walk through everything that's going on. And actually, I went to my roommate's graduation and all of a sudden, all the people around me were standing up and I looked up and there was this man walking through and accepting the diploma for his wife who had actually passed away. And everybody was just standing um, and just honoring him. And he was crying and it was just quite an experience. But I just thought, wow, like all of these people are are witnessing and acknowledging the pain, you know, that he's experiencing. And, And I hope that in the days to come as well, people can still continue to give that support. Boy, what a memorable moment. So Colin Campbell talks about as much as those are the moments where you might say, I want to be alone, I'm going to close my shutters, I'm not going to answer the phone, that's what answering machines are for. This tradition, he says, of thousands of years, he thought, maybe I'll put a little faith in that and letting people come and sit Shiva with him. Which reminded me, when he said thousands of years in Jerusalem, the southern steps are the way you approach if you're the common people, you walk up the steps and they're made long and short, long and short. So you can't run up. It's this very thoughtful way that you go up. Everyone goes up that way and they exit somewhere else. It's only the entrance, unless 
you have had a loss in your family and you walk out against the grain, the stream of everybody going in. Mm. And so they see you and they stop and they talk to you. Mm. And you might think, well, I wouldn't do that, but that's the tradition. So you do it whether whether you wanted to or not. And I thought, what a beautiful way of saying you really need this. So for this year of grieving, you need to do that so that the people in your community will see you and know what's happening. I think the other thing that really was impactful for me was this idea about uh, turning that word God into love. Yes. Um, Mm. And we actually believe that God is love. So that wasn't a huge stretch philosophically to do that. But then to actually do it, to read love in the place of God and all these different scriptures uh, suddenly gave me a new, new appreciation for who God is for me. And I'm just really thankful that Colin could provide that. Yeah, great book, Finding the Words. Daniela Lee is our next guest, and she is the priest in charge at St. Mary's Episcopal Church, not far from here. She talks about love as well. The word that I keep getting is reckless <laughs> Yes. in this, and we'll hear how this unfolds with her. But she is an immigrant, and she has been through a journey of several different denominations within the Christian faith. And she's truly thoughtful, and I love that about her, about listening to her discuss these ideas and her own experiences. And, you know, one of the things that she's going to talk about is the importance of small acts in the lives of, of people in her own life and in the, in the lives of people around us. And I want you to listen for one thing, which is at one point, somebody points out to her what she should be doing that seems so obvious to mm-hmm. them mm. that had never been obvious to her until she heard that. And just this little effect that we can have on other people. So here is Reverend Daniela Lee. You know, I'm not an expert in Romanian history, and I was four when our dictator was killed. But my family was very religious. My grandparents had converted to the Baptist church. I guess sometime in the 1920s, Baptist missionaries came to Romania, and a bunch of people, mostly from the western part of Romania, converted. And they had really strong communities, maybe precisely because they were oppressed by the regime. Right. And I know a lot of pastors were put in prison, and it was dangerous to meet. And I think that might have been one of the reasons why the communities were so strong and why they survived those difficult times. Talk me a little bit through your journey through different denominations to find what felt or feels at the moment like your spiritual home. As I said, my family was Baptist. Most of the people in my family that were faithful were very inspirational to me, and I strived to follow their path. But there was a convergence of things that happened that made that impossible for me to continue in the Baptist faith. Part of it was we were abysmally poor. And my mother was divorced and coming from a broken family and then being poor, sometimes in certain denominations that might seem like you don't have God's favor. So that kind of permeated a little bit into the culture that we grew up in. So it was difficult to integrate fully in the Baptist community as I was growing up. And as time went by, there were several things. There was the fact that I am queer that was coming to surface, and there's not a lot of opportunities to be open and queer in certain denominations. So at one point I left, and I was searching, but not intentionally searching. It was a time of confusion. I was a teenager. I was figuring out life and everything else. That's always a time of confusion anyway. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Even if you don't throw religion in the mix. And it wasn't until I was at the university that I started reading. So I I majored in philosophy. So I started reading Schleiermacher and Paul Ricoeur and all these ideas of the historical critical approach to interpreting the Bible. These were all brand new ideas to me, right? Like my mind was blown. Like, what do you mean? You can research the context to figure out the time of Jesus and why these things were happening, right? Just discovering this plethora of lenses that you can use to look at the Bible and find a truth in it was brand new to me. And 
once I discovered Paul Ricoeur and his essays on biblical interpretation, I looked him up because I had never read anyone speaking about religion or the Bible that way. And I found out that he had been Lutheran. <laughs> so being a bold 21-year-old, I went and I knocked on the door of my local Lutheran church, literally in the middle of the week. And this priest opened the door and I said, hey, I want to be a Lutheran. Can we do that? <laughs> How do I sign up? And he said, yes. And the church only had services in Hungarian, but he did a catechism with me in Romanian. And I finally got baptized in the Lutheran church. And I stayed there for a few years for as long as I remained in Romania. At one point, they started a collaboration with the ELCA, and they had two priests from New York come to Cluj-Napoca, where I was living at the time. And they started like a church for expats, which was in the English language. So that was a bit easier for me to follow since I'm not a speaker of Hungarian. Right, right. <laughs> so that was my journey to the Lutheran church. And then... I found myself in the Episcopal Church through a series of fortunate events because I started this program called Work and Travel in the USA, and I got a job in Key West, Florida for the summer. And I asked my priest to look up the churches in Key West, Florida, because there are half a million denominations in the United States. That's not a thing in Europe, right? You have like seven denominations. Right, right. <laughs> But here, there are so many denominations, and I didn't know how to tell the difference between them. So I asked my priest, and I said, can you look up the church? Churches in Key West, Florida, and recommend one. And he was like, Yeah, there's a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Don't go there. Go to the Episcopalians. <laughs> so that was my first encounter with the Episcopal Church. The liturgy was almost identical. And I loved it there. There were two people because it was hurricane season. It was great still. And then I met my husband while I was in Key West, Florida. And after I was done with my job there, I came to Utah. And the first week that we were here, we went on a bike ride date and passed by an Episcopal church. And I made a mental note like, oh, this is within walking distance. I can come here. And the first Sunday that I attended there, I didn't want to see anything else. Like that was it for me. It felt right. It completely felt right. So you said that at one point you left that first denomination, maybe not feeling at home. I want to ask, did you feel like you had also said goodbye to God? Or was God sort of a constant on this journey through different denominations? Did you always believe in God or feel some contact through all of that? I always believed in God, but I didn't always believe that God believed in me. So in the church of my childhood, usually people start getting baptized around age 12 because it needs to be a mature affirmation of faith. And the custom is that you would go in front of your church and do a testimony about how God has revealed God's self to you and how transformation has happened in your life. So I would hear testimony after testimony, all these teenagers saying, oh, God spoke to me directly. I heard God's voice. And I had never experienced that, right? I am very literal and very naive. <laughs> and I thought, oh, they literally heard a voice that I've never heard. So it must not be for me. So I left the church believing that, yes, I do believe in God, And I would like to have a relationship with God, but maybe I wasn't one of the people that God chooses to have a relationship with. In the the following denominations, at what point did you start to feel like maybe you did or could have a relationship, a two-way relationship? Well, it was about seeing God through a different lens. When you no longer believe that the Bible is absolutely literal and inerrant, And you can see that it was written by people who are searching for God, but are also susceptible to human flaws of interpretation, of human metaphor that might be faulty, or ideas that might change through time. That's when I understood that there are different lenses to look at this. So I started looking at the Church Fathers, which I had never done before. I started reading the Bible with a more open heart that it might be more than what I was told. And, and right there, you just made a little shift from the head to the heart. And you can be very philosophical and very logical or scholarly about religion. What made that addition to the heart? So this is a bit silly. So I was reading Paul Ricoeur, and he has this book with André Lecoq. I think it's Essays on Biblical Interpretation. I know, it was 20 years ago. I'm not sure. <laughs> Paul Ricoeur 
writes a philosophical essay about a topic and Delandre Lecoq writes a theological essay on the topic. So I am here studying philosophy in, in Europe and I'm living this like semi-bohemian life wanting to be like this exquisite philosopher. And I'm reading this book wanting to love the philosophical interpretation and being more and more drawn to the theological interpretation. And I was angry <laughs> because I didn't want to be a theologian. I wanted to be a philosopher. And yet there was this pull that made me think there's more to this than just the doctrine, just the theology, more to it than just the intellectual side. There is is a transformation that comes through in these words of the theologian that mean more than the words of the philosopher for me. And I think that's when the shift started. Um, so it's interesting you talk about reading philosophy as a new approach. When you started studying those writings of people who were just within a few hundred years of Jesus and the apostles, I'm just curious what you drew from that, what you learned from them. I think the most valuable thing that I've learned is how to move away from the ransom theory of atonement and look at incarnation as the path to salvation. And it mostly comes from Irenaeus. He talks about how when, when Jesus becomes incarnate, he touches humanity, and humanity becomes sanctified through that. He touches Mary by becoming incarnate from her body, and femaleness becomes sanctified. He becomes incarnate as a male, so maleness becomes sanctified. And he also offers us a living model of a life lived always turned towards God. So it's not so much the fact that Jesus died for our sins, it's that Jesus existed as human. That is the salvation event in itself. And that was truly transformational for me because that has implications on so many levels. Like all of a sudden, human flesh does not become this dirty thing that you have to deal with because you are this pure soul that is tainted by the dirty body. You are a full person with the two, body and soul, and both are sanctified through the fact that Jesus has become human. Also, the fact that all these human desires that we might have are not inherently bad because they're bodily desires, right? The fact that you like to eat is not inherently bad. There's ways in which it can be ethical or ways in which it can be unethical, but the fact in itself is not unethical, right? And then there's no longer this whole theory like, look at all these sins that you acquire and every time you make a sin, Jesus keeps suffering for you. Like that shame and that guilt become removed and you can fully then be free to live into God's vision for you because you are no longer in that prison of shame that you build for yourself. You're listening to In Good Faith, We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Somehow you have this change that you're actually going to pursue this instead of philosophy and serve yes. a congregation. Will you tell me that story? Well, I was already in the United States. I was attending church for a while and I was... Well, by American standards, overly involved, but by Romanian standards, normally involved <laughs> in the life of the church. So Reverend Pablo Ramos is my mentor. He's the vicar at San Esteban St. Stephen's in West Valley City. And that's what I was attending at the time. He wasn't my priest at the time, but he was there for the Hispanic congregation. And we were having a conversation, and we're both immigrants, we have a lot in common, we're connecting. And at one point he asked, how come you're not a priest? You're obviously educated, you're obviously dedicated to the church, you obviously want to be here, you're obviously called. Why are you not pursuing this? And I just shrugged and changed the subject. <laughs> he, he's saying obviously called, but it had never occurred to you. It had never occurred to me, indeed. But once he said it, I could not stop thinking about it. It's like a door had been opened, right? And that's, that's really how it started. And it was, you know, the process is not all sunshine and rainbows. There's challenges, especially as you go deeper into not just the theology, but the polity of the church and our own human error in administrating institutions, there's always wrestling to happen, but somehow I made it. <laughs> I made it to the other side. You know, you mentioned being an immigrant as well as your mentor. And I remember the first Christmas that it hit me when someone said, yes, uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus had to flee to Egypt. They were refugees. 
Mm-hmm. And who took them in? Well, there were Jewish communities throughout and in Egypt, most likely that community. But I'd never thought of them as refugees. Mm-hmm. How has being an immigrant affected your faith? I think it made it more obvious to me how throughout the Bible, God calls unlikely people to do big things. Mm. You know, Moses is a person of two worlds. And as an immigrant, you always feel like you belong to two worlds and never fully to any of it. When I go back to Romania, I'm the American. And when I'm here, I'm the immigrant. I am never fully one person, right? Can you feel like one person in church or with God? Yes, I do. Because church somehow becomes like this isolated, thin space that's outside of the social space. It's interesting that depending where you live, there's not only a faith tradition, but there's also the culture, wherever that congregation lives. How do you make your way through what's cultural and what's actually the faith? What comes from God, I think, has to be in accordance with what we have in the scriptures about Jesus' teachings, right? Jesus' commandments for us were love God love your neighbor. And his last commandment at the Last Supper was, love one another as I have loved you. So I think something is from God if it's in accordance with that mandate to love. Mm. You know, if it tends towards inclusion rather than exclusion. If it tends towards being open and curious and inviting rather than being afraid and closed off. Like how many times does Jesus say, do not be afraid? Right. If something is steeped in fear and exclusion, to me, that is maybe cultural, maybe part of like our own inherent human weaknesses, but it doesn't come from God. God calls us to be loving and to be bold and to be courageous. I think it's so interesting that we each have our own ways that we might feel the Holy Spirit or God. I used to be a little frustrated that I didn't have those experiences like you talked about. And then coming to recognize over time certain ways that maybe I was directed. I always had to choose to put faith in them. Like I could say that was a coincidence or I could say I was led to this, this person, this thought. And I started to trust that God was speaking to me in certain ways. How have you felt answers to searching questions or prayers? I mostly found them through intuition. I think as humans, we forget that our intuitive side is the one that is attuned to God. It's not necessarily a rational one. We can talk ourselves out of anything, ultimately. But I am fortunate enough to be very reckless by nature. (laughs) And so when a wild idea pops into my head and I strongly feel it in my gut that this is the Holy Spirit guiding me towards something, I follow it. And every time I have, opportunities have arisen that I would have never envisioned. Because I'll tell you this, you cannot take a little Romanian girl born in abysmal poverty in a family with abuse and trauma and mostly All the things that could go wrong did go wrong. Mm. You cannot take a child that damaged and that disadvantaged and almost 40 years later have her living a life that is fulfilling, that is happy, that is healed without being fully led by the Holy Spirit. That's not something that I could have ever envisioned. Maybe the best that I could have envisioned for myself was having a nice job and a small little apartment and a nice little family somewhere in Romania and not ever thinking that I could be working for God's mission. You know, I I would have never seen that for myself, and yet God saw it for me and then pointed to the paths that I could take Without knowing what the next step will be. Yeah. So you were brave enough to take those steps and those interesting paths. Or stupid is another word. (laughs) Reckless. Well, (laughs) reckless is sort of in between there. Yes. (laughs) Okay. When people come to you in your congregation and you're there to serve them, to sometimes give advice, are you surprised by how you see God working in their lives? Do they see it? Do you see it first? Just like that person who said, why aren't you clergy already? What's your experience with serving other people like that? Sometimes. One of the things that I'm most grateful for is that God gives me the ability to love people more than I thought that I would be able to love people. And it's such a privilege to be able to love people and look at them in ways that they can't even see themselves, right? Like we all have this degree of finding ourselves not worthy. But when you allow God to color your own vision— you can love people a lot easier, I found. 
And being able to transmit that love is better than any advice that I can give. And that's something that I've experienced myself. That's something that has been very pivotal in my own journey because people have loved me without me deserving it or working for it. People have just loved me because that's who they are. They are loving people. And meeting those people and having those people become my chosen family and carrying me through difficulties of life and being incredibly lonely as an immigrant, not having family, not having friends, you know, having those people that just say, oh, she needs someone and that someone can be me. Stepping up to that challenge of just walking this journey with me, that has been one of the most transformational experiences for me. And because I recognize it and I recognize that village of people that have and still love me makes me humble and also makes me want to do the same. That's beautiful that you want to pay that forward, so to speak, that you want to to share that. So that love that you felt maybe unexplained or unearned from other people, did that help you feel like God could love you or did? Oh, that was all God on his own. (laughs) (laughs) But it was nice to see the living faith of people living in their promise to love one another. Because you've lived in different places, you've maybe been a religious majority or minority right here where you live now, where you serve your congregation. It's a minority. Do you have any thoughts on how to live your life in that situation? It's kind of appealing, actually. (laughs) Because we're not a rich church here in Utah. We're not a big church. There's very few of us. And I think that challenges us to be more intentional about how we live out our faith. Because we don't have that cultural groove to fall into. This is how things are done. We have to be intentional about our own practices of faith because they are different from the majority, right? For example, our Holy Week services are not something that you encounter in the LDS faith. The Tenebrae service on Wednesday, the Monday Thursday service, and the Good Friday service, and maybe the Easter Vigil, right? Those are not things that are common here. So I think they acquire even more symbolism for us because they are such unique things that we do and that contribute to our identity as Episcopalians. We are people who closely follow the cycle of Jesus's life, and those are such pivotal moments, and we honor them. Like on Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. I'm a St. Mary's with my wife because I wanted to be thinking about that week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yes, I think we lose a lot when we skip from the Hosannas of Palm Sunday to the Hallelujahs of Easter, and we don't look at all the suffering that happened in between. And we don't walk that road to death with Jesus. And Jesus asked his disciples to stay awake with him, and they didn't. And we also can't fully engage with the suffering that Jesus did. But year after year, we remember it, and we walk that road as much as we can. And I think that once we go down to those pits of grief and despair, that Alleluia of Easter acquires so much more meaning. In contrast. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that made the biggest difference in my faith journey, and I think what makes the biggest difference in most people's lives are not the big gestures that happen when you interact with other people. It's the little ones, the small ways in which we love each other, in which we create community. That has been transformative for me. And that's why I chose to stay within organized religion. And it's those encounters with people that are steeped in love that are transformational. It doesn't have to be big. It can be small and insignificant maybe for the one doing it, but it can have like this huge impact for the person that's on the receiving end of love. So that's the advice that I always have for people. Be as reckless as you can be with love. Give it away. Just give it away. Love everyone. And don't think that maybe they don't deserve it, maybe they won't appreciate it, maybe this, maybe that. No, just give it away, recklessly, without thought. Share it. That was Reverend Daniela Lee from St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Provo, Utah. I had such a great time when she was here talking to us. And hey, P.S., we might do something with Star Trek later, you guys. Huh? It's all in the works. <laughs> Don't you worry. But, um, you know, my heart broke a little bit when she was talking about how she and her mother didn't quite fit into the congregation mm-hmm. that she went to as a child because her mother was divorced and because they were poor and there was this cultural attitude about, you know, 
being rewarded by God because you're righteous. And I just thought, who am I sitting next to a church who feels like they don't fit? And what am I doing about that? And how am I helping them know that, in fact, they're incredibly important to our congregation? And the whole fitting in thing, she has great life examples. She says now when she goes to Romania, she's the American. I mean, that's where she's from and mm. where she grew up. When she's here in the state, she's an immigrant. Yeah. But she does feel like she can be one person with God. And I'm glad she found a place like that. And if I'm going to find a place, I hope that's the place I find to 100% be one person. Yeah. I also love just how she talked about— transmitting God's love and how that had more sort of value and impact on her and on other people than any advice. I think often maybe we we can sense a problem or can see that somebody needs help, so we go into advice, problem-solve, fix-it mode. And sometimes maybe they really do need that kind of help, but oftentimes they really just need to feel that you care about them and you love them, and they can sort through those problems later. They just need you to be present with them through love. And experiencing love in community. Our first guest, Colin Campbell, talked about that with the synagogue he goes to, even as a non-believer. Right. And then she talks about ways that she was blessed by her own community, including the Episcopal priest who said, why aren't you in ministry? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you—you are obviously called. Like, what a phrase to say, you are obviously called to it. And she she was shaking her head like, what? I love that cultural note about how in America she was over-involved in church, but for Romanian, she was just sort of normally involved in church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. And I want to bring up the word reckless. And she tried to say stupid. I don't really believe that. I right. think she was committed that she had moved from philosophical to theological in a way she said was from her mind to her heart and that she would recklessly share love and recklessly follow what she felt was direction, in her case, from the Holy Spirit, as she described it. And may we all have that reckless kind of love interpersonally, in community, and maybe even in believing the way God loves us. Hello. Did you know that we have a TikTok account? Follow In Good Faith Podcast on TikTok for exclusive content, like video excerpts from our interviews, Man on the Street interviews, and me on location. Many thanks to Colin Campbell and Daniela Lee for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinic. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Mitchell Towsley, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you like the show, be sure to leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps us spread the word. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith. <laughs>